0: Thank you. Good morning, Nashville. Um, Our scripture reading today is Matthew 7, 7 through 11. Ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks, receives. And the one who seeks, finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if a son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good, give good good things to those who ask. This is the word of the Lord. Well, good morning, everybody. Hi. My name is Russ Ramsey. I'm one of the pastors at Christ Pres. I'm usually um, at the in town congreg or the central location, but I'm glad to be here this morning bringing the message. I have friends in the room. It's so fun to come here and to see familiar faces, people from, from just years of living in a very social town. Uh, but it's good to be here this morning. I'm excited about unpacking this, this passage, which in my mind is, has got to be on the top 25 of scripture verses that people are familiar with. It's probably not in the top... T- Five, You know, it's not like God so loved the world or you shall not commit adultery, but it's, but it's pretty familiar. And, and, and so I'm excited about getting into that because I, I, one of the things I love about talking when I talk about um, familiar passages is there's this challenge to try to break through that sort of fog of familiarity into something that's, that's truth. Um, and so I'm looking forward to do that. Today is Father's Day providentially. Today's message is and passage is from this ongoing study of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, which deals with the fatherhood of God. Specifically, it deals with his goodness as our father. And so we're going to be talking about that. I'm excited to unpack these verses. And as I get going, I want to tell you exactly where we're going to go this morning so that you can know. This basically has two parts. Part one is I am going to tell you a story about my childhood, and then I'm going to use that story as a Trojan horse to get into your heart and ask you to search it. So that's the first part. The second part is I'm going to unpack from this passage this idea that God is a good father who gives his children what we need. He withholds from his children what is harmful and he does it all in the context of a parent-child relationship. So that's the sermon. So if you've got someplace to be, that's the sermon right there. Is God is a good father who gives his children what we need. He withholds what is harmful, what is useless. And he does it all in the context of a parent-child relationship. So what is the earliest prayer? Do you remember the earliest prayer you remember praying? And I don't mean like a church service prayer where, you know, you you were in a service, but but an earnest prayer, something that rose up from deep inside of you, a cry out to God. Do you remember what yours is? I I think I remember mine. The earliest prayer I can remember is a prayer that was lifted up from the banks of Buck Creek in rural Indiana, in the cornfields of Indiana, where I grew up. I was around 10 years old. I grew up there in the farmland of Indiana on an acre of land that... My parents had carved out from my grandfather's spread, which was farmed by the farmers around. So I grew up around farmers. I, I wasn't a farmer myself. My parents weren't farmers, but that's, that's where I grew up. And Buck Creek ran just 100 yards in front of our house. And it was this place, this creek, that was just teeming with, with crawdads and carp and turtles and catfish and water moccasins, which were instrumental in the passage from boyhood to manhood, just knowing that that danger was there, and it was a perfect place to develop the imagination of a child, and directly behind our house was my grandfather's house. My grandpa was an elegant man. He wore green trousers, a white button-up shirt, a straw hat, chewed on an unlit cigar, and he kept a pristine garden, just pristine. He had a green thumb. And one of the things that he loved to grow, which was an odd thing to grow in the Midwest, was he grew bamboo. He grew the stand of bamboo out of Indiana clay. And he would let it grow for a couple of years, and then he would cut it down and use it to make trellises for the beans in his garden. And so one summer day, I found this large stack of newly cut bamboo, and I knew immediately what had to be done. And what had to be done was I was going to use that bamboo to build a raft to float Buck Creek like Huck Finn. (laughs) And so I made my plan. I'd use milk jugs as floats. And I would use baling twine and lash together this bamboo platform. And I could already feel the freedom of the currents taking me from Buck Creek to Cicero Creek to the Wabash to the Ohio to the mighty Mississippi, which would then deliver me into the open waters of the Gulf of Mexico, where I would be free. And I ask you, can't you picture right now that sun-kissed boy on that raft in that water? So I took my milk jugs, and my bamboo, and my pocket knife, and my baling twine, and I took it down to the creek, and I got to work. It quickly became apparent to me that I lacked, as a 10-year-old boy, the engineering skills necessary to make anything that would be deemed seaworthy. Instead, what I had was a flimsy collection of knots, and chutes, and jugs that fell apart in my hands that I couldn't even carry to the creek without it just disintegrating. And my heart just, it just sank. Perhaps you know that feeling. This is the Trojan horse part. You know that feeling where there's something that you want. There's something that you are actually working toward. And you think you're doing it right, or you think you're at least doing a passable job, but in the end, it just doesn't, come together you don't get what you hope for and it feels like a cosmic betrayal if you don't have a view of God it feels like the universe is against you if you do believe in God it feels like the maker of the universe is against you when my raft failed I was angry and I remember that I was angry with God That he didn't make my plan work out better as though he owed me that much. And what I remember about that now is how easily that thought came. How easily the thought came that you owe me this much. And so in that anger I spoke that prayer, my first prayer, and it went like this. God, if you are any good at all, make this raft work. Otherwise, how do you expect me to believe in you? How do you expect me to believe that you're good? Because from where I was sitting, it really wasn't that much to ask. But the raft failed to make it even to the edge of the water without falling apart. And that boy considered God to be deaf to his prayer. Humankind is asking a very basic question. And the question is, is there a god out there? Are we alone or not? Is there a god out there and if so, can he be trusted? Is he good? Is he engaged? And then we test the question in all sorts of ways. Have you ever found yourself in a situation where something good happened and your response was god came through for me just now? You ever found yourself in a situation where something didn't pan out, and you felt, God just let me down? It's a pretty universal thing that we experience, and I would contend that it comes easily for us. So the question is, on what basis does God prove his goodness and his love? Romans 5.8 gives us a very succinct answer to that very question. God demonstrates his love for us in this, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God is not new at showing his goodness to people. He's not still figuring out how to do that. But something in that 10-year-old boy on the banks of Buck Creek assumed that the goodness of God could be tested and measured by how he performed according to my desire that day. I presume that I could determine his goodness using my criteria. And being honest, there is something in the 44 year old man who is standing here at this podium right now who still thinks that way, and I I try not to, but I still feel the weight of disappointment when something doesn't go the way that I think it should, and that disappointment so easily gets directed at God. Do you wrestle with that? Do you experience that? Have you lived long enough that part of you feels, by now, shouldn't I be over that? Shouldn't that part of the struggle? Shouldn't I have grown enough that this isn't something I wrestle with anymore. If there's a magic age for that, let me know how close I am. I'm 44. I thought it should be by now. Where are you disappointed with God for what feels like a failure on his part to perform? The raft disintegrating in your hands after it felt like it wasn't that much to ask. Can we be honest about that? Because... It's important for us to be honest about the fact that we very easily place ourselves in the position of acting as judges of God's character and goodness. I think we do it. I think we do it all the time. What are you doing with the disappointment that you feel right now? Are you using it as a reason to curb your emotions, to keep them in check, to keep hope pressed down? so that you don't get disappointed again you're protecting yourself by being let down from being let down by God you're guarding against hope and the truth is guarding against hope is a profoundly unchristian thing to do but i do it and today's text speaks to it and i want to look at it ask seek knock Jesus tells us. This, this passage that we just read is, is, is more in the Sermon on the Mount on the topic of prayer. There's been a lot in the Sermon on the Mount on prayer. It's been woven through. We've been warned in Matthew chapter 6 against hypocritical self-indulgent prayer. We've been given a model prayer for how to pray by Jesus in the Lord's Prayer. And here what Jesus is doing is he's telling us about the one to whom we pray. And what he does to do this is he just makes these promises and that's what they are, they're promises he's saying if you do this, this will happen and he's not qualifying it he says this ask and it will be given to you seek and you will find knock and it will be open to you, in other words Jesus is saying expect God to respond to your prayers, hope pray your prayers, pray them And these verbs here are present tense imperatives which indicate persistence. There's an ongoingness. Ask and ask and ask. Keep asking God for things. Keep seeking. Keep knocking. Keep asking. Never stop doing this. We resist that, don't we? Because anybody in the room who has spent any time in a relationship with the Lord and that relationship has involved prayer, has a story where you would say, I asked God for something and he didn't give it to me. Or, he seemed strangely silent in the matter. One reason we often don't ask for things we desire is because we fear disappointment. We don't want to be let down and we, told, we don't want to be told no. It's the hesitation you might have felt even this morning in this room as I've been talking that yeah, but, that raises up inside of us, even as as you hear the words that I'm speaking, and I'm telling you that Jesus makes this promise, ask and it will be given to you. What does Jesus do? He actually doubles down on that hesitation we might feel, and he says this, everyone who asks receives, and everyone who seeks finds, and to the one who knocks, it will be opened. In other words, God will not let you down. He will give you what you need, so ask away. And we can feel the raft falling apart in our hands, and we can say, "Mm, I think what you're saying, Russ, is naive. It doesn't work that way. And to that I would say, this morning I'm a messenger, and I'm reading the words of Jesus. So the question is, is Jesus naive? to say this, to make these promises? Is he overcommitting? Did he have a moment later where he thought, hmm, that might have been too strong? Is he lying? Or could it be that, that we just have a little bit more work to do to understand what he means when he says this? Because the next verses unlock this qualifier that's vital to understanding what's happening. What he says is, when you ask, you always ask in the context of a relationship. And it's not just any relationship, but it's a parent-child relationship. He says, which one of you, if his son asks for bread, will give him a stone? If he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, who are evil, (laughs) know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father who is in heaven, give good gifts to those who ask him. So it turns out there are two catches in what Jesus is saying. Catch number one is God will only give us good things. This is the first catch. He's only going to give us good things. And the second is that it's always going to be in the context of a relationship. He's not a genie in a bottle. He is a father with children. We were made to benefit from God's kindness and generosity. We're made for that. And we're made to benefit by acting uh, through interacting with him as children before a good father. Prayer, what Jesus is talking about here, what he's saying is it's, it's a relational transaction. It's always a relational transaction. It's never not a relational transaction. You're not submitting a help ticket at the customer service desk of heaven and hoping that God is going to see it and maybe get to you in time. It's a parent and a child relationship. And so when we ask, we ask as children to a parent and it falls on the parent to respond in the way that is best for the child. And so if we ask for bread, Jesus says, he's not going to give you something harmful like a serpent And he's not going to give you something useless like a stone. He is going to give you what you need. Why? Because he is a good father. Better than the best earthly father. It's important for us to to hear Jesus telling us, your father in heaven is good. It's also hard for some of us maybe to hear that. It's perhaps an elephant in the room for some of us that not everybody has a good model here. Not everybody has a good model of a good father. So here's an issue <clears throat> that we run into whenever we're reading scripture that's talking about anything eternal or divine. And it's this. When we talk about God or anything that's, that's not of this world, we have to use what's called anthropomorphic language, meaning terminology, words, concepts, ideas that earthbound people can comprehend in order to help us understand something of the divine that is not like us. And this happens all the time. Scripture does this all the time, because how else could we comprehend the eternal, immutable, all-knowing, ever-present creator of the universe who existed before time began without putting him into some language that we have categories for? And so, for example, Scripture likens heaven to a city where the streets are paved with gold. And we can at least get part of the way there with that image, right? We can close our eyes and imagine a city paved with gold. We know what gold is. We know what a city is. We know what streets are. Or the Holy Spirit is likened to a fire or a wind or a still small voice. And we say, okay, that helps. Jesus is described as a king and as a lamb and as a servant. And we have categories for those. Those are things that we've seen, things we know about. God calls himself a father. And when we hear that term, corollaries come to mind, the fathers we know. One struggle that we have, trying to comprehend greatness and perfection through lesser imperfect imagery, is that often we cannot help but impose the limits and flaws of the lesser thing onto the greater, right? Does that make sense? Because scripture does this everywhere. Well, today's Father's Day, we're reading a passage where Jesus is saying, your father, In heaven, God is a father, and he's good. And some of us have good fathers, but some of us don't. Some of us have abusive fathers. Some of us have no father at all. And so to talk about God as a father for some is hard to do because we can't talk about fathers without encountering pain. And if that's you, may I pastor you for just a moment here in in that? The pain. The pain in response to the sins of our parents, comes from a longing in each of us to be parented well. It comes from a longing to be parented perfectly, actually. And so when we read about God being a good father, the pain we may feel is because we actually ache for the very thing Jesus is saying that God is. The good father that we maybe never knew And so when God uses this word to describe himself, he knows that he is using a potent image. It's as close a relationship as two people can have, a parent-child relationship. And it also, in light of the fall, is potentially one of the most alienating and painful relationships that people can have. So what does Jesus say in today's text about that. He doesn't say, cheer up, God is a better father than the bad fathers you may know. He says, no, God is actually a better father than the best fathers you may know. And even the best father is evil and deeply flawed, you know, selfish, proud, unaware, ill-equipped. You know that, right? I mean, any, any parent knows that feeling, mother or father. If you're a parent, you know the feeling of, of there being something that a child needs, and you just, you don't know how to get to them. You don't know how to get to the thing that would maybe unlock the box that they look like they're in. And it can be, you know, when, when, they're, when they're young, you know, you can wait it out with, with, with hugs and, and uh, you know, Disney Channel and stuff like that. But when they're older, it, it can be a lot harder and a lot more painful and, and a lot, just a helpless feeling. But Jesus is saying even, even good parents who struggle to know how to be good all the time are parents who still have the sense that when their child asks for a fish, they're not going to give them a snake. When they ask for bread, they're not going to give him a stone because they know that their job is to care for the needs of this child. And what Jesus is saying is God is not just better than a bad father, he's better than the best father you know. And so if you're thinking, it's hard for me to get into thinking of God as my father, it's just too painful. Jesus is saying that pain is precisely why you should think of God as your father. Because you intuitively know that a father is supposed to be good. And the pain that we may have due to the failures of earthly fathers comes from that deep innate longing for our fathers to be like the father Jesus tells us God is. The one who withholds no good thing. So the pain that we feel, we may feel, from the sins of our earthly parents comes from a longing to be parented perfectly. And what Jesus is saying is this is your father in heaven. And he's better than even the best fathers. He withholds no good things. So Jesus says ask, seek, knock, and keep on doing it. So what about when God says no? The good father who withholds no good thing is the same good father who gives no bad thing. The truth is, Sometimes we don't realize that what we're asking God for is actually a serpent or a stone. When we ask God to give us things that are useless or harmful, the good father refuses. As sure as God will not give a serpent when his children ask for a fish... Neither will he give a serpent when his children unwittingly ask for the serpent. Prove your good to me according to my criteria in this moment, based on how I feel right now, with my limited perspective. Make the raft work. There's an old Puritan prayer, <clears throat> which has this line. I, I just I love it. Uh, it says this. It's about prayer. It says, "I thank you, Lord." That many of my prayers have been refused. Not a Garth Brooks song. Some of you got that. I am right on the generational edge right here, man. Where I just, you know what? That silence was just the sound of me falling over into the old man category. Some of you even probably thought, who's Garth Brooks? inexcusable let me start over with a prayer again I'm sorry I got (laughs) I thank you that many of my prayers have been refused I have asked amiss and do not have I have prayed from lusts and been rejected I have longed for Egypt and you gave me a wilderness go on with your patient work answering no to my wrongful prayers and fitting me to accept it that's strong Go on with your patient work, answering no to my wrongful prayers and then fitting me to accept it. My prayer about the raft, I've since come to understand, was terribly short-sighted. I made the mistake of assuming that a boy's bamboo raft was a big enough deal to determine the goodness of the creator of heaven and earth. And God was kind to me that day. Remember, this is a Trojan horse, so you're in the story. He was kind to me that day by allowing it to fail because he refused to let me assess his goodness based on the seaworthiness of a shoddy collection of jugs, bamboo shoots, and twine hastily assembled for a 10-year-old boy's amusement. He wouldn't let me do that. That would be giving me a serpent. Where are you doing this with him right now? Where am I? I could give you a list. What does God need to do to prove his goodness to us? This is where it gets really ironic, this passage. Romans says, God demonstrates his kindness and his love and his goodness in that while I was still a sinner, his son, Jesus Christ, the one who delivered the Sermon on the Mount died the death that I deserved to die so that I could have life in his name. Heaven forbid I assign the same value to a raft or anything else. Where are you searching for the presence and the goodness of God? What are you asking him to give you? Is it something that will poison your heart against his right to parent you? Give me enough of something that I don't need anybody anymore. Will it contribute nothing of substance to who you're called to do and to be? Let me, in my spiritual development, retire. Are you asking for a serpent or a stone? Where? The irony of this passage is that Jesus Christ, the second person of the Trinity incarnate, is the one speaking these words about God providing what we need. So we come to God with burning desires, things that we desperately want. But when we do, we have to see what God has already given to address our greatest need, which was something that we in our rebellion against him did not ask for, redemption. The one who is describing the good father, who gives his children what they need, happens to also be the one who was given to atone for our sins and remedy our separation from our Father. And so the yes that has already been given in the sacrifice of his Son in response to our greatest need will forever outweigh a million no's to our requests for serpents and stones. God is a good Father. How do we know this table tells us about what he has already given? He withholds what is harmful and what is useless, but he gives what we need and he does it in the context of a parent-child relationship. And he's already met our greatest need in Christ, which is proof that our Father is good. And that's the reason we come to a table like this. Let me pray.